This is Doug Friedman. And this is Meredith Levy. And this is your special mental breakdown. The podcast. Indeed. Uh, continuing our series of the personality scales, we're, we're looking at the five love languages and such. And we are joined by Dr. Jen Thomas, who is, in addition to being a motivational speaker and a psychologist in her own right, she has literally written the book with Gary Chapman, not the five love languages, but when sorry isn't enough and the five languages of apology. And we are thrilled to have her here with us. So Jen, welcome. It's great to be with you all. I've enjoyed listening to a few of your podcast episodes and I'm glad to be able to share today with you and your listeners all about the five love languages. I've brought some new things that I can share with you to Mm. try to keep it interesting for people who could recite the five love languages in their sleep. Um, (laughs) But we'll also review the basics for people who might be new to our five love languages. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah, I love it. We love we love spicing it up. Yeah, if you want to just give us a little background, what I think is unique about this one in terms of what we've been looking at with Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, these are personality scales about yourself. The love languages and a lot of the work that you do is based on communication and and other people. So if, if you want to give us a little background and how maybe even how you came to it and you got connected to this, because it's it's been around nearly 30 years now, the book, the original book, right? You're right, Doug. Next year will be our 30th anniversary of Love Languages. And it's a a rare book in that it it sells more books every year than it it did the year before. And it's been on the New York Times bestseller list since about 2008. Oh, my. Yeah. And the Five Love Languages has been translated in about 50 languages around the world. My co-author of When Sorry Isn't Enough, Gary Chapman, wrote The Five Love Languages on his own. It came out in 1992, and he originally had in mind wanting to be a missionary, and he is a a Mm. pastor here in North Carolina, but the mission field didn't end up being where he was able to go after college and graduate school, and so he and his wife really serve from home with these books that travel all around the world. And he says that when they get a new translation and it arrives on their doorstep, he and his wife pray for the people who are going to be reading that book, that it would help them in their relationships. Hmm. Wow. That is amazing. Very cool. I find it's one of those books that I can ask anyone in my life and randomly people will know it. People that I never thought would know it. It can be clients, friends, Hmm. my niece's friends, just random people. It doesn't seem to have a rhyme or reason necessarily, but it just, people hear about it. And I I don't think I've ever talked about it before where someone wasn't like, oh, tell me more just because it sounds so interesting. So I think that's so cool that it just goes across clearly 50 languages. (laughs) It's got a very far reach. And I I think that's one of the things about it is you're talking about love. Who Mm -hmm. doesn't? have an interest in love or at least communication. Speaking of love and communication, how did you come into this? Because this is not directly your world, but it has become, right? Right. Uh, I first heard about the five love languages when I was a doctoral student in clinical psychology at the University of Maryland. And I was Mm -hmm. a newlywed and 
most people who are engaged will say, oh, I got one or more copies of this book as wedding gifts. It's really practical. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I read it then and and really liked it. And as a young therapist, I often recommended it to couples that I was seeing and doing some relationship work with. And I saw that it really had some practical advice that could help couples of any age and in any situation to be able to resolve some of the miscommunications they were having. What I saw was across the board, they wanted to connect they wanted to rekindle their love. If they'd been married a few years, it's easy for that in love experience to go away faster than we expect it will or than we want it to. And I was just finding success in helping couples to be able to rekindle that flame of love through the book. And so mm-hmm. after graduate school, I moved to North Carolina and I ended up connecting with Gary Chapman professionally. And then I had an idea a few years later about apologies and some similarities they have with the love languages. Mm -hmm. So I I took the idea to him and and he really liked it. And that's when we began to work together. Nice. Yeah, I definitely want to go into the apologies as well, because that's clearly a huge part of relationships, or at least could and should be. (laughs) Maybe. Right? (laughs) Right. If you can just uh, recap for us the different languages and what they each mean just in a nutshell. Yeah. So if your listeners want to go to the fivelovelanguages.com, they can take the quiz. It's free. And I also like that our publisher has put different version for different ages. So there's one, if you want to know your kids love language. Mm. And then we've got a version for singles and a version for couples. And as I describe these five love languages to you, I want to bring in the new piece, which is I was wondering which of the five love languages is the most common. Hmm. What percentages of the population go with these five? And I was not able to find a, a big study about it. And so I thought, well, maybe I could do that. So I went to our publisher and they were willing to give me the data on 300,000 people who had taken the love language profile. Wow. wow. Yeah, it was fun. I got to get back into my research mode from grad school and I crunched the numbers. <laughs> <laughs> and what I'd like to do is to share them in increasing order of popularity. So from sure. the bottom instead of from the top. The first one is receiving gifts. And we found that only two to 4% of people in our assessment had that as their primary love language. But I'm going to say right off the bat, I think that's an underestimate. Meredith's nodding. I can see here on my screen. I feel like people either, one, are afraid to say that or they feel like they're going to be judged. And two, I also think receiving gifts, to me, I always use this example, like, If you come over and pick a flower on the way, that's for me is like receiving a gift. It can be something so, so little that you don't buy or anything. So is it the most important? I don't know. But I feel like people are just very like wary of actually acknowledging that. Exactly. And and maybe not understanding it too, right, Jen? Because I I think you guys have said it's also the gift of time. So if your primary is quality time, if someone gives you the gift of time, that's actually a gift. It's not just the quality time. So it, it maybe it permeates some of the other 
love languages as, as well. It might not be its own primary and two to 4% seems really low. My guess would have yeah. been gift receiving because it seems to be, in my experience, one that I see people looking at their different percentages and it's usually between zero and 5% for the people that I've known to take it. Okay. I love presents. Right. Bring them to me. And that's why it might not be a primary, (laughs) but I think it's there for a lot of people, especially if the gift is the gift of time or the gift of people love getting cards and it's it's the sentiment behind the cards. That's receiving a gift. Yes. And so for your listeners, if you're like me thinking, oh, that's way too low, um, as Meredith said, then chances are that that it's one of your primary love languages. Mm. Oh, you made me think, well, no, I don't think it is an over or an underestimate. I, I think one of the others is more important. Um, so as we go through, your listeners can figure out where they might fall. The next one at, at 17% is words of affirmation. And that mm. is using your voice or written language in order to let someone know that you really love or appreciate them. I'll say for me, this is in my top two. I really like it if I get a thank you note or a text that says, I not only appreciate what you did, but I appreciate who you are. And so I try to do that for others as well. Like I enjoy writing old fashioned notes and letters to people because I can see that it's something they can go back and reread when they're having a hard day. Mm. And then our third love language at 21% of the group who took this survey is physical touch. And we laugh because a lot of men will raise their hand on this one and say, oh, that's definitely me. And their partner may (laughs) may laugh or wink at him or nod. But what Gary Chapman says, and I agree, is that this is more than you liking intimacy. This is that you want to hold hands when you're going for a walk or when you're sitting at the movie. So just that any kind of touch means a lot to you. Like with this pandemic and the shutdown, someone whose primary love language is physical touch will notice that they're really missing hugging people or holding Mm. hands or being cheek to cheek with the people who they love. Yeah, I love that. And I think hearing you kind of break some of these down, it reminds me that these are not binary. Mm. How they're rated in percentages means we have all of these in our repertoire. These are all ways of communicating love. So they might be at different percentages for you over different times. And overall, I think there's parts of us that want each of these things. Yes, exactly right, Doug. We do find that sometimes the season of life will make one come to the forefront for you. Mm. And we've been going through a difficult season where people may be more in touch than ever with what makes them feel loved and appreciated. Yeah. And I have a question. So I know when I, I've taken the quiz multiple times and when I take it, what I find is my answers are those things that I don't get enough of in my life. Right. So for example, Mm. yes, I absolutely love when someone tells me that they love me or they put their arm around me, but because I've been alone a lot of my life, I don't have people that offer to do things for me and that, or that do tasks for me. 
Mm-hmm. So when my boyfriend, the first time he brought in my garbage cans, I almost had a heart attack. I was like, did you do that? <laughs> and he was like, uh, yeah. And I was like, that is the sweetest thing ever. So while I love that, I think if I had that all the time, if I were married and I had a husband and he always did that kind of stuff, I don't know that it would be as special to me. So when I answer these questions, a lot of times it's also based on where I am in my life and what I have and what I don't have. Is that normal? Yes. (laughs) No, you are abnormal. I know. I know. Yeah. Meredith, it sounds very normal to me. Uh, We do find that sometimes the situation will affect which love language you're thinking of at, at that time or in that relationship. But we do believe that overall, most people have one or two of these love languages that's primary for them um, that you can reliably guess. This is going to make, whether it's my child or my partner or even my coworker or a friend, Mm. really feel both loved and appreciated. Yeah. So um, the next one with 24% of the first place votes is acts of service. And what that's about is um, just as Meredith alluded to that um, we love it when people do things for us. And so anything you do to serve someone else could be showing them how much you care about them, that you want to lighten their load and that you may not always use words or you may not always give them a hug, but doing something that helps to make their life easier, whether it's helping them with a project or helping them on something around the house, that that's going to convey to them that you really value them and that they are a priority to you. Yeah. And then moving on to our winner in this survey (laughs) I conducted is quality time. We found that 35% of people most wanted us to slow down and sit with them Hmm. and not be on our phones, but to really have that face-to-face contact. And I think to not be hurried, to not be on a time frame where we need to go on, but to say, you are my priority today or for this time. And just spending that side-by-side time, maybe doing something fun together. I love that. And that's, it makes me think that in the book you talk about, um, or Gary talks about in this book, that it's not just about getting credit for something. Mm-hmm. And I, I've talked to couples that I work with about this where quality time is not like there, I'm coming to this thing you wanted me to come to. Like, don't <laughs> I get credit for it? Like, well, right. just the attitude and the fact that you were on your phone the whole time or even an act of service. Like I did this chore that don't I get credit for it now? That's right. not the heart. That's not speaking a love language. Right. Yeah, they can undo it with that. Um, Gary and I talk about non-apologies in When Sorry Isn't Mm. Enough. And I feel like what you're describing would be non-quality time or Mm non-acts of service when we ask for our points, in a sense, for those things. But they do need to come from an open heart and a cheerful giver. And so it is powerful when it's something that that hasn't been assigned. And I've even seen this in play in marriage counseling. I'm reluctant to give advice, like write each other a love letter because it's not going to count if their partner heard that being assigned. Right. Right. Cause right. Then it's a chore or something you're supposed to do 
to get credit and check right. it off the list. Right. It's, it's interesting too, because you mentioned touch and, and of course, and people couldn't see this, but when you said a lot of the guys that we talked to will raise their hands like, oh yeah, physical touch, <laughs> that's me. People might not understand it, especially males that will just hear that and go, oh yeah, that means intimacy. And it's, right. you know, what you say about touch doesn't always mean foreplay. It's not, it's not about that. It doesn't have to be about intimacy that way. To me, it's the communication of, of love through touch, not touch that leads to intimacy or touch that leads to a physical action or act. That's right, Doug. Even like playing with your hair or like rubbing your hand unconsciously while you're watching TV or something like that. I think that's the best. Right. <laughs> yes. And there's, there's such variety in what people like. Some women love to have someone run their fingers through their hair, but in certain cultures, that's a no, no. There might be all kinds right. of stuff holding oh, that right. in place. And if you get in there, they're going to be offended. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So true. I think something important to note too is just because it's your love language doesn't mean it's your partners or who you're relating to. Like if somebody's going through a difficult time and you put your hand on their shoulder or their back because that's a comforting thing for you, I heard this from countless couples where they will shake you off. They'll shake mm. that that hand off of them and they they don't want mm -hmm. that right now. That's right. not what they're speaking right now. That's not their language. It's yours and you meant well, but it's knowing it's knowing each other. Exactly. Yeah. And you said there's a difference between the, the, the test for single people and the test for couples. Can you, you talk about the importance of that? Because that, I think that's huge. It's knowing the person you want to relate to, like your teenager, if they took the test for, for teens and, and went through it, that's cool. I would also hope that they want to know what your love languages are so they can relate to you so it can be reciprocal that way. That's true. Yes. And it brings us to an important point, which is that you really can't guess what people's love language is. So it's helpful to take one mm -hmm. of these assessments. You can also ask questions like what things make you feel most loved, what things don't. Um, so mm -hmm. going back to your example about what kind of touch do we like? It's so important to have a conversation because you can have what we call an intent impact discrepancy or you're really missing each other and you end mm. up having a disagreement and maybe you moved away from me because I tried to put my arm around you. And now I'm offended because you moved away from me. And then right. if I confront you with that, you might say, well, I was intending to show that I care for you. And so that's where you're, they're bringing up their intention and trying to get out of the, the doghouse understandably, because they weren't trying to upset you. They were trying to make you feel cared for. And mm. so that's something that runs through the writing I do is helping people to untangle where we've missed each other in our efforts to connect and really trying to get to what was the feeling of love and affection that's behind that. So bringing that back to the different assessments that we have, one nice thing is that we understand not everybody's in a relationship. And so I really like that there are versions for people who are out there and single in the world, which I understand is the majority on any given day. And so it's a really important group. And they may feel like, you know, the whole world is paired up or is geared towards couples and families, but that's just not true. And so we wanted to be sensitive to that and have a version for all ages and all types of relationship status. I like to, um, sometimes I'll have, 
I don't work with couples very often, but I often work with somebody in a relationship and sometimes their partner will come into the session every blue moon. Hmm. And if not, sometimes I give my client, I tell them to do the quiz and I tell them to have their partner do the quiz. And then I say, okay, now write down next to it what you think your partners are in in the right order and have Mm -hmm. your partner do the same and then compare and see how accurate you were. Did you have any idea? And I know it says somewhere that that's a very, it's a very low amount that you actually guess the correct one. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that you do that. I, I created a similar form um, when I started doing clinical practice where I list the love languages and try to match them up. It's such an important thing to be aware of because it's at the root of a lot of disagreements. And that's why I appreciate Mm -hmm. that you are dedicating this podcast um, episode to the five love languages, because we see the uh, misunderstandings that come if we don't recognize the differences. I remember one woman I was seeing for individual counseling She was talking about her partner who traveled quite a bit for work. And when he came back in town, he would want her to not have her regular activities like her Friday tennis game seemed to be a real bone of contention Mm because, hey, I got back in town a few hours early. Why are you leaving? And so she would come to my office and be upset that he had sulked around again and the attribution she was making or the story she was telling herself about that is that he's awfully controlling. He doesn't really want me to have a life. He just wants me to sit around and wait for him to get back. So I had her pause and I said, do you know what his his love language is? And she said, yes, it's you all might want to guess it here and I'll have your listeners think for a minute. It's quality time. Quality time. Yeah. (laughs) And I wanted to smack my head. Like I could have had a V8 because, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it was obvious that for him, her not going to tennis would show love and just stay there and be with him. And he in no way intended to say that she shouldn't have her own life. And so our work was to help her reframe what he was doing. And as counselors, we know reframe literally means like take the gold frame off of that or black frame (laughs) is more often what we do, a negative lens and put a pretty new frame on it that will serve you better. And so after a few sessions, she was able to reinterpret his words, not as a demand, but as an expression of love. Yeah. And as a request for his love language being met. And I I love that you you kind of alluded to something that you've talked about before with the the different stages of love and that we can have a primary and a secondary love language. And I think that what I hear a lot with, with the couples that I work with and people that aren't coupled that I work with is that falling in love that I think Gary calls it the champagne love, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that, that honeymoon period of what that's like, that excitement in the beginning and people always wanting that again, and that doesn't necessarily last or it changes. And it's, it's interesting that our, the way we love and how we love changes over time in the course of a relationship. It's interesting that I, I think something Gary said, I don't remember where I read this, but it was that love can make a marriage work better, but communication makes love work better. Mm. And that idea of 
stages of love that love changes over time. It's not just getting back to that champagne feeling like, Hey, I got back to town. Why didn't you drop everything and spend quality time with just me? How come we're not in that phase? Right. Exactly. Yes. Those in love feelings or the in love experience as Gary calls it tends to only last for a year or two. And then Mm. there's a challenge of what, what do we do now? And I feel especially a burden when the couple has had kids by about that time and they're thinking, well, maybe, you know, they interpret the change in feelings as, um, well, is our relationship any good anymore? And do I need to go find a new relationship so that I can have that in love experience again? So that's part of our mission is to help people recognize, well, yeah, your love may be changing, um, but there is a lot of good love that comes with commitment. It's more like a good old silver that has a patina mm. that comes with age that you're just not going to find in a transient relationship. And so I really encourage couples, especially if there are kids involved, to see what they can do to hang in there and give it a few more years and make sure that you're interpreting their efforts to show you love and appreciation in the right way. I don't want them to be missed in any way. Another thing we say about the five love languages is that it's important for them to be specific. If you're going to go to the trouble of showing love, we want it to count. And Mm. some of your listeners may not realize like just a general, well, I love you. I I set it at the altar and I'll let you know if it changes, <laughs> <laughs> kind of, I love you, that that's not going to mean as much as a few sentences, hopefully more than one even, that lets them know specifically what you appreciate in them or specifically what you like that they're doing that is making your life better in that time. Mm-hmm. And I'll share some about my family. I've been married for 27 years and we have three kids. Wow. At least four of the five of us work together for most of the shutdown time. And I realized quickly that things can get kind of stale when you're not (laughs) interacting with other people (laughs) in the world. And as a words of affirmation person, I found that I was missing just the simple little interactions. I feel like women... I don't know if men do this, but we compliment each other on our outfits and our hair and our fingernails and your tattoo, whatever. Yep. And my boys at home were not doing that. And y'all, I was just dying on the vine. Mm. (laughs) So true. So I thought, what can I do about this? So I went on Amazon and I bought a little book called Happy Notes, 101 Sticky Note Surprises to Make You Smile. It's just the idea of, can you put a little note on my mirror that lets me know you appreciate what I do? So I gave him this on May 20th. What's printed on there is good for one big hug anytime. And physical touch is my guy's love language. Mm -hmm. And I added, I'm glad I'm in shutdown with you. Because we were all in shutdown. We didn't have any choice about that part, but I was glad (laughs) if I had to be with anyone that it was with him. Um, And then he wrote back that same day, his sticky note said, awesomeness, great, A plus. And he wrote back even more than I wrote him, um, which was great. He Mm. said, hey, love, great work keeping us stocked up, well-fed and equipped. 
I've loved seeing you lean in with agreeing to let us adopt our first dog Hmm. and with some of the talks that you've been having with our youngest love, John. Wow. Oh, like you just said that with prefacing that is being specific. That is very specific, which is fantastic. Yes, exactly. And it meant more to me than if he had just said, Hey babe, you know, I hope you had a good day or whatever, or you did a good job today. It meant more because he named the things that were hard and that were stretching me, like having a dog, Mm -hmm. which we had resisted with our first, we launched two kids to college without ever having our own pet. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to stay with the five love languages, but we have you. And there's a perfect segue, I think, because what you're talking about makes me think of all the clients I've ever heard and family and friends that will just endlessly apologize for something. I can't tell you how many people start their sentences with, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It loses any meaning. It's not specific. It's, it's almost as if one of those happy notes was just a heart and you put the heart somewhere. It doesn't right. mean anything. That's right. It can feel like I'm sorry for living. I'm sorry for everything. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't carry as much weight. And I agree with you, Doug. There are a lot of parallels between the love languages and what Gary Chapman and I now call the apology languages. So we coined that term for the different ways in which people say, my bad. Mm-hmm. And we looked and found that there are actually five different things that people most want to hear or see when we apologize. And mm. so, um, Meredith, you talked about having your list when you see couples of what are their mm-hmm. love languages. When I developed this, I added a second section where I list five apology languages for both members. And I, I mark what their primary, if they have the same primary apology language or love language, they may have a leg up on other couples. Like it's really nice when you have a match because that says your reflex is going to be to do the right thing. Right. You're not stuck if you have a mismatch either with apology or love languages because you can learn to speak the dialect that's going to hit home for your partner, your coworker, your family or friends. Once you know what they need to hear from you, then you can be intentional about speaking that or showing them, like, for example, with apology languages, showing them that you want to make amends, you want to make it up to them. For some people, that's more important than using the words, I'm sorry. And a simple tip on apologies that I like to share with people is many of us reflexively say, I'm sorry, as our first apology. And I've I've done that myself But I realized it doesn't carry a lot of weight to most people because you can be sorry without being responsible. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage people to reflexively say, I apologize as the first reaction when you realize you owe an apology instead of I'm sorry. And I find that it makes the other person less defensive Mm-hmm. and they understand, okay, here comes an apology, and I don't think she's going to try to weasel out of it this time, but we'll see. Yeah, I love that. And I'd love to hear a little more. I'd love to hear a lot more about this, but that idea of getting defensive, and I, I think the the idea of an apology for many people 
is trying to stave off some conflict and trying to like make sure it's okay. And what they yeah. often don't do is they don't, I, I think this is one of the love languages, they don't accept responsibility. Mm-hmm. And what I hear so many times from people is, well, am I just crazy or this, 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 you know, because they don't right. get a validation that something was wrong or that they saw something differently. So the other yes. person isn't necessarily accepting responsibility. They're trying to fix the person that was uh, quote unquote wronged and make <laughs> the thing okay without actually accepting any responsibility or validating it. I find so often that it, it really can even come down to semantics, to the verbiage, to one word. Like even you said, I apologize or I'm sorry, but so often when you talk about the love languages or the apology languages, it really is just the way we hear things or the tone. And mm-hmm. someone said, like, I apologize. No, you didn't. And they were like, yeah, they don't even remember because the person was like, sorry, and walked away or, you know, and it, and the actions speak louder than words and all that stuff. And so I think literally breaking down, what does it mean to you? What does the word sorry mean? What does apology mean? What is, Hmm. what are you looking for? You know, it would be the same thing with what does quality time even mean to you? Does it mean five hours of us just being alone or can it be 30 seconds? Exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. So being specific about what do you want to hear and see. And with your quality time example, I love that of asking, well, well, what counts for quality time? Because Mm -hmm. I could imagine for one person that might be, I'm available, I'll put down my phone when you're speaking. But for another person, it might be, we have a phone stack in the middle of the table And any time that your phone comes out of the stack and is in your hand doesn't count as quality time. Mm. I don't know if you brought this to Gary, how you guys came up with this, but was it born out of recognizing the issue of communication in the five love languages or in relationships that there's something happening that isn't getting addressed? And that's Mm. the nature of an apology. Well, the idea actually came out of my own marriage. So Mm. John was unimpressed with my apologies because I was reflexively (laughs) saying, I'm sorry. And he called me on it, which Mm. is, it's funny because he's not a therapist. He's in the investment world. And it sounds more like something the therapist partner would do. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) he, he didn't like my I'm sorry's and he wanted the kind of accepting responsibility that Doug was just describing. And so we worked that through and I got curious about what else people were looking for and apologies. And I did some research into it. And I found that in addition to those two things and the making amends that I mentioned, that there were two other things. Some people really want to know what's going to be different next time so that this won't keep happening. Mm. And that's really in my top two. And I find a lot of people will say yes, like if they're an office manager or someone who relies on other people dotting their I's and crossing their T's to get their work done, they will often say, yes, I I need that apology language about how how is it going to be different going forward? How are you going to fix this and prevent it from reoccurring? Mm -hmm. And then the fifth apology language, and I promise we weren't looking for five. It's just, just that's what happened. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah. So the fifth one is actually a question. 
And that is, will you please forgive me? Mm. And many of us don't even really think of asking that. It seems like, well, it must have been a really big deal if I have to ask for forgiveness. But the challenge is, again, with different cultures, different people were raised by a parent, a grandparent, or a teacher who may have expected that question at the end. Like, that's when you've finished your apology. And so they might grow up and come to work with me, and I might make a mistake and give an apology and use all of the other apology languages. But if I stop short of asking for their forgiveness, the trouble is that I will check it off and move on. And they will be wondering, why is Jen holding out on me? Hmm. Right. Why won't she give me a full apology? And I wouldn't probably even know that they resented me for that unless we have the conversation. And so I brought this idea to Gary Chapman because I was struck by how it was so similar to the love languages where you, you offer what you think they need, you check it off, you move on. And if you have a mismatch, you wouldn't even realize it. And he realized right away that, that this was an interesting idea. Mm. And he invited me to write a book on it. And he said he would help me get it published. And he said, you don't have to do this because it's your idea. But if you'd like to, I'll partner with you on it. And so I said, let me think about it. Yes. And so <laughs> <laughs> we've been working together for 15 years. And it's been a, wow. a really nice collaborative relationship. That is amazing. You used a phrase a second ago that I want to highlight because I think to me, and I don't know the the apology languages very well, but hearing this and hearing you talk about it, oh yeah, I'm going to read this. I mean, that's probably my next read. <laughs> I, I love it. You said a full apology. And it makes me mm -hmm. think as opposed to the five love languages where you might have a primary and a secondary, and that's your thing. Mm -hmm. To me, again, complete novice at this. The, the five apology languages, it might be almost necessary for a full apology to include each one of them, almost like five steps. Because I can hear people that I've experienced saying, oh, yeah, uh, oh, my God, I'm, I'm so sorry I did that. I'll never do that again. How can I make it up to you? And they're hitting two of them, but they're not right. necessarily expressing the regret or accepting the responsibility. It's just how do I erase this? Right. Mm -hmm. So it might be. And that might be enough for some people, but I wonder if, if that idea that, that you just alluded to, that that full apology is something you've looked at where there is such thing as a full apology and it does include all five or some combination of them, even though one might be more dominant for somebody to hear. Right. Yeah, you make a great point, Doug. They are steps to a complete apology. Mm. And one thing that our readers have really liked about When Sorry Isn't Enough is that if they follow our formula, they feel like they have a stopping place too, where they don't have to keep groveling and wondering if they've said or done uh, enough. Right. It's like, okay, I did something for all five. Now the challenge in that, if I had a client in my office, I would tell them, well, that doesn't mean you get to be defensive if they don't forgive you right away. Uh, right. We do stress <laughs> that patience <laughs> is part of the um, sincerity coming across in your apology. Mm. And really sincerity is the key word when we're talking about apology languages. And I would say love languages as well. I don't want your flowers uh, as a gift unless they're sincere. Mm -hmm. And I don't want your apology 
to be just flowers and no words because I might not think that's sincere either. And so I do encourage people if they're giving an important apology, the kind where you would use all five languages to consider writing it out. Mm. And I gave a, a TED talk a few years ago at TEDx Greensboro, and I talked about that a written apology is a gift that can keep on giving. For the writer, it lets them know that, okay, I did cover all five. Mm. And then for the recipient, it's something that they see that you care enough to have taken the time to do that. And if they feel frustrated about it, again, instead of telling you, I'm really struggling with this right now, they can do that, but they could also just go and reread the letter and it might make them feel better, especially if it's a moment where you're not there and available to talk about it. Yeah. What would you think about if in my mind, as you're saying that I'm picturing, of course, this lovely handwritten letter, right? And I'm wondering in my mind, I feel like if someone wrote me an email or a text, it would take away so much from that. And I also know that that is how people really communicate a lot now. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I have a lot of thoughts on that, Meredith. <laughs> <laughs> I recently um, was rereading a blog post I'd written called Stop the Digital Drama at drjenthomas.com. And I said, look, digital communication is for when situations are neutral or positive. Mm -hmm. As soon as we know it's dicey, it's going negative here, I encourage everyone to break away from the electronics and to have a conversation because that's going to convey your tone of voice. And it's also going to let you know when you need to let up or stop. Like if you're confronting mm. someone, you can hear when someone's flooded, but if it's an email you've blasted them with, you can't stop. It's just in their inbox. And that feels Terrible, I would say, as someone who has been blasted in my <laughs> inbox. Sure. <laughs> Nobody wants that. So let's show each other the respect. The hardest part of it, and this is something I'm even still trying to teach my college kids, the hardest part is to stop an argument once it's already started, especially by text. And so mm. I remember last year, my daughter was texting me about something and she was out shopping and I wasn't giving her the information she needed or the answer she wanted. And it was going negative. And I stopped it and I said, it sounds like we need to talk. Can you please call me on the actual telephone? I did that for two reasons. One was I thought it would help us. But two, I sincerely hope when she's in college and things are going south with a roommate or a friend, mm -hmm. that she'll stop that text and that it'll be somehow a reflex for her to say, look, Susan, you're too important to me for us to argue about this situation with our apartment. Just call me when you get out of class and we'll talk it over. Yeah. Right. Oh, I love that. That's great modeling. That's parenting to me. That, that's how you do it. As you were talking about this, something popped up for me. You must have addressed this, but again, I don't know. I haven't read the book yet, but I am running on Amazon or wherever I can get it, and I will. <laughs> I know, right? Right. The idea of apologizing, and I, and I don't mean the people that were just profusely say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. For a lot mm -hmm. of people, that sincere apology, and you stress the sincerity, which I love, is mm -hmm. something that is really hard because of the built-up guilt or shame or embarrassment. 
And those emotions might be so overpowering that somebody will not want to apologize or say, I'm sorry, because they will need to feel that guilt, shame, and embarrassment. Mm -hmm. And as a therapist, I go, well, that's the stuff we need to work through and we need to move through and we need to, to relieve ourselves and release ourselves from that hold. Did you come across that in doing this, this work and this research of how, how it is for people to come to an apology when there's such maybe shame associated with it? Exactly. Yeah. So let's name the first group, the people who apologize too often, we call over apologizers. Mm -hmm. And we have a little section in when sorry isn't enough about that problem and about how over apologizing cheapens all of your apologies. It makes them seem like they're not sincere because Mm -hmm. we sort of know, well, it's just a conflict avoidant person and they just don't want anyone to be mad at them, but it doesn't carry the weight of a gem um, or a gift that they're giving us because it's actually too common. Right. And so we encourage people to reserve apologies for certain situations. And I'm writing a follow-up book now with Gary Chapman and Paul White on apologizing specifically in the workplace mm. and tied in with our consulting work there. And I'm working on a flow chart about, well, how do I know when I do need to apologize versus when I'm over apologizing? Um, because it's a tricky area. And yeah. then to your other observation, Doug, which I think is a very good one, that for some people, um, it's hard to apologize because they do, it makes them feel like they're bad inside or they're a bad person. And in our, I'm pretty sure it's our third chapter, we unpack accepting responsibility. And in that one, mm. we talk about that it's really hard for people to do that if the message in their FOO or family of origin mm -hmm. was you not you did a bad thing, but you are a bad person or you are a failure or any of those messages that as a parent, you know, just make us cringe. I don't want to hear any child put down in terms of traits that they have, or I never want to see a child treated like garbage. But if they had a parent who did that out of maybe a misplaced attempt to make them stronger or make them ready for the world in some way, we encourage them to recognize that that's not true, that everyone has value, everyone is worth being loved, hmm. and that it won't make them weak to apologize. And that, in fact, if we think about the people who we admire the most, chances are that when they needed to, they would give you a good, sincere apology. I love that. I think it can be one of the most empowering things and where people have that, if it's the, the shame or embarrassment associated with it, they'll miss out on the part where it is empowering because you do connect with somebody in a very sincere way right. and then you can move forward with them in, in a more cohesive way, like a much stronger communication, right? Right, right. Yes, exactly. And something Gary Chapman and I say in that book is apologies open the doorway to forgiveness. Um, mm. But it's not guaranteed that they're going to forgive us, right? We've got to be right. patient. Um, we can't demand that they forgive us. And we might even say something like, I recognize that I've trampled on your trust. And if trust takes a hundred steps and we're only on step one, then I'm here to do what it takes to rebuild all 100 pieces of that. And I'm not going to rush you. Aww. Wow. That's wow. so lovely. <laughs> Love that. That's that's a that's a good rap note. I like that. Like that. 
<laughs> I love that we we talk we started talking about love and the love languages and then moving towards apology and it kind of rounds out like it it really if you're mm-hmm. if you're versed in this if you understand how to communicate with love with apology it really is a recipe for good sincere relationship with longevity. That's so true, Doug. In fact, I love something Gary Chapman said to me as our book was being launched initially. It was originally titled The Five Languages of Apology, and then it was re-released as When Sorry Isn't Enough with updated content. But with the original release, he said to me, "Um, Jennifer, this isn't just one more book for me. I think Mm. he had like 30 books at the time. (laughs) But he's, yeah, he said, we know it's key for people to feel loved and appreciated in all their relationships. But if they can't handle the offenses that inevitably come up, then they're not going to be able to keep those relationships going. So he said, I really consider apology languages and the love languages together to be the two essentials for healthy relationships. And as I go for the rest of my career, he said, I'll be talking about both of these together. Hmm. Wow. So true, actually. There's your words of affirmation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't mention, actually, I found it interesting. I asked Gary Chapman what his primary love language is. Ooh. Mm. And it's also words of affirmation. Wow. Yeah. I mean, he's put those words into practice, I think, through the books and through, as he said, like reaching people in all these different languages and different countries. And it's it's a wonderful thing. And for us, having you is is such a treat because I, I can speak for Meredith. I think I can say we have loved and appreciate having you on and talking to you about this. And we could literally talk to you for another hour easily without skipping a beat because this stuff is, yeah. we work with our clients on, on these kinds of things all the time. And I hope that our listeners got a good flavor of this and we'll go out and look at the five love languages, look at when is sorry, not enough, uh, and your website. DrJenThomas.com. DrJenThomas.com. That's right. And there's also a an apology quiz, right? Yes. And it's on my website, along with the five love languages quiz under the free resources tab. Or oh, cool. um, listeners can go to fivelovelanguages.com to find okay. both of those as well. And I've really enjoyed this. And um, it was it was a real pleasure. I love this series that you're doing on different personality mm-hmm. tests. And I myself am a fan of several of them. And I actually speak Enneagram as oh, wow. well. So I enjoyed listening to your episode on that. Absolutely. Oh, wow. Nice. I swear it all the more we do this and dig into it, the more we find out that a, a lot of people just dip their toes into a lot of it and it all intertwines, which it does or can. Right. But it's really cool to see. Yes. Yeah. We, we just spoke to the Myers-Briggs person that we had on and they were the same, I think the same type as Meredith and went, and my Enneagram, I'm, I'm an eight wing seven or seven wing eight. Oh, I don't remember what it eight was. Eight wing but seven. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. funny. Like we have the same. Yeah. It's really cool. Oh, so exciting. Yeah. We're all trying to help people and their relationships to be as healthy as possible. And so it makes sense that we all kind of follow the same useful tools. Yeah. I love exactly. it. Again, thank you so much for, for being with yes. us here. And I, it's not lip service. I really am going to go out and get that book. It, it's, <laughs> it sounds great. And I, I'm really interested in, in diving deep into it more. And um, again, so, so appreciative for you coming and talking to us. It was great. Yes. Thank you so much. 
Doug and Meredith, thank you. I, I enjoyed it.